You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Hello and welcome to The Good GP. Today on the episode, I'm talking to Dr. Paul Effler from the Health Department of Western Australia and infectious diseases expert. Can I call you that, an infectious diseases expert? Sure. Usually I go by public health physician. Public health physician. You have been our expert on lots of things to do with infectious diseases, Paul. And we've got a really interesting topic. It's the topic of measles and measles outbreaks. Let's talk about measles to begin with. Why is measles significant and what are the major public health implications of, say, a case or a case cluster? Well, measles is the most infectious disease known to humans. And so we always say if you're susceptible and you're exposed to measles, you're very likely to get it. And historically, measles has been a big killer. And we still see that in, in refugee camps around the world where people are uh, malnourished and other, other conditions, that it, that it really is a killer still. So I think with the success of our vaccination programs uh, over the years, particularly in Australia, has uh, eradicated measles since 2014, according to the World Health Organization, we don't see much of it anymore, and we tend to think of it as maybe just a mild childhood illness, but it can be quite serious. Yeah. Your point about the success of the program, it's an incredible success story for vaccination in general. I mean, I was looking through the figures. In 1980, 2.6 million people died worldwide, and in 2014, there were only 75,000 deaths from it. It's an incredible success story, but the success makes it difficult to work with because we don't see it anymore. Yeah, I think for uh, clinicians, it gets harder and harder to know when you're seeing measles just because you haven't seen cases recently to remember how it presents. So it's important to keep that in our minds because until measles is eradicated worldwide, and that may or may not ever happen, high levels of transmission will be occurring in many countries and many countries that Australians like to go visit. So it's a traveler set that goes abroad, acquires measles and brings it back to Australia that can spark off a small change of transmission here. Mm, yeah. So let's do the refresher and talk about a typical presentation of measles. Um, so what does a typical presentation look like? It sort of uh, starts a little bit fluey with the muscles, aches and pains like they all have, uh, developing a high fever. Pretty much uh, conjunctivitis is, is really classic, runny nose, and a cough develops. And usually it's about four days in when the rash develops, the characteristic measles rash, typically starting on the face first and then spreading to the rest of the body. And that's often when people seek care is actually when that rash is developed. And unfortunately, they've really been infectious to others since the day before they started getting sick. Yeah. So that's what makes control a challenge. So they're, they're really infectious in the prodrome and the chorizal phase because it's a respiratory-borne virus as well as other contact? Absolutely. So for our public health responses, we start with the, the day before their prodrome is what we usually go with. And if they can't remember their prodrome, we go four days before the rash, saying that people before that have likely been exposed and we need to make sure they're protected. Yeah. Just to change it around uh, and think about it differently, because we'll often see, say, the said rash present, what is the pretest probability of, of a child with, say, a morbilliform rash actually having measles? So if we see someone who's worried about measles, what are the chances that it will be measles? Okay, a child here in Australia that's been fully vaccinated, say if they're 18 months and they've had their two doses, and they come in with a rash illness and have no travel history overseas and have not been exposed to a known measles case, I tend to think that's pretty low. 
And most of the time, I'm comfortable with advising, get the laboratory testing done just to rule it out, but we probably don't need to start containment measures at that moment till we figure out what we have. Mm. On the other hand, if you have a young adult, typically somewhere between the 20s and 40s, they're too young to have gotten natural measles and a protection or immunity through that, and too old to have gotten two doses of the vaccine for sure, and they've traveled abroad and they come back and have a high fever and a rash-like illness, that's, that's a pretty decent probability. And so, therefore, we might act and start containment before we get the lab results back. Yeah, so the response from a public health point of view just depends on the actual history and things like what age group, what's the immunisation background, what the travel background is and so forth. Sure, we have written guidelines and then we interpret them to the situation to do what we think is appropriate. And I guess most people from Australia are well-nourished, otherwise well, or they're going to have a miserable illness, um, but they're going to recover and be fine. But we worry about pregnant women who might not be immune, people that are immune compromised, and that's really where we try and focus our interventions to make sure that those people don't acquire measles and if they do they have a milder illness than than typical course. Yeah great. So if we see these people with suspected measles what tests would you recommend doing? Uh, What's the best way to test or what's a a good sort of algorithm of testing? Okay so sometimes you don't get advance notice but whenever we communicate to people about if they think they have measles we say call your GP before you just show up because what we'd like them to do is to say I think I might have measles or I have a febrile rash illness and then it can be appropriate just to see them outside the clinic even in their car is one of the cases that recently uh, happened and assess whether it ticks the boxes for measles testing and if it does do that that's because we're trying to not mix them with patients in the waiting room, yeah. the pregnant women, the immunocompromised people that are very likely to be there. Then you get down to how do we test for it? Well, fortunately, PCR has made it a fairly straightforward test. It used to be just serology-based, and it was uh, more of an issue. But now you get a throat swab, a nasal swab, but throats are usually easier. Uh, collect urine because it'll be in the urine as well. Most people also draw sera because it can be tested there as well, and they can look for antibodies, pre-existing antibodies to potentially rule it out. So those would be the three things, but certainly a throat swab and a urine if you can get it for PCR testing. Yeah, I mean, the swabs are a little bit nicer, particularly for the little kids who might be really difficult or challenging to bleed. Uh, But I think that your advice around getting them consulted potentially in the car is really good advice. And it's probably worthwhile practices thinking about having an approach to dealing with the child with the rash so that they can really contain it and, and think about it. And absolutely. And if your specimen collection is not located on site, it's important if you send that patient off that you notify the collection center that this may be a measles case because they do have procedures to try and see that individual in a way that they wouldn't expose others. Like I said, it's so infectious that we think you can acquire measles if you go into a room 30 minutes after a case has been there. So it's important to try and not mix uh, susceptible people with potential cases. Yeah, so it's one of the ones that is really highly, highly infectious. Absolutely. You want to spray the seat down afterwards that the patient's seen. (laughs) Well, it's it's really airborne. I mean, measles is truly an airborne infection. And that's why with travelers, they can pick it up just going through airports yeah. with other people that have measles. If they're coughing or even speaking, they can be putting measles into the air. So we really want to get the message out to GPs. To, if you know folks are going abroad, especially that young adult set to middle-aged adult, inquire about their measles vaccinations. And if they don't have two in their history, try and make sure they can be caught up. Yeah, great. So if you have a possible case of measles, would you isolate that 
child at home or person at home or? If they're clinically well, I would isolate both those, a child or adult. If they're being evaluated for measles, they should be out of circulation with the others if they're clinically well enough to not be in hospital. And what about the rest of the family in that situation? Do you shut the house down? And It depends on the timing of it right? If they've been exposed to the person long enough. So the incubation for measles, the shortest it would be is seven days. And the longest we say 18, sometimes it's a little bit longer. So before seven days after exposure, they're not likely to put anyone else at risk if they're a contact. But after that point, they could potentially develop measles. And the 18 days that you've mentioned there, is that 18 days since the prodrome started or? That's 18 days after your exposure. So if I was exposed and I acquired it, some places have even suggested up to 21 days, but but 18 is a cutoff we use. So if you make it 18 days out after your exposure, we typically think you're you're home free and not going to get it. Yeah. Okay. It can be hard to know though when your exposure is in an airport. Especially among family members and or for travel as well. Sometimes it's clear like it's somebody at a clinic, for instance. The patients were there one day and they were exposed to a case. We know exactly when that potential exposure happened and we can advise them appropriately about when they need to be on the lookout for symptoms and when they're all clear. I guess for GPs, the tricky thing is most often we're, we're just seeing the rash and trying to give advice around when the rash, from when the rash appears. The most common question people ask is, well, when can I take this child out? I guess the answer is really once we know what the results of the tests are, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. That's how we handle it. Until we know what it is, you shouldn't be taking the child out. And I always say to parents and others, and and certainly not why the child's unwell. Really, that'll typically be non-infectious four days after the rash comes on. But by that time, they're usually feeling much better as well. Okay, let's talk about the vaccine, which we've been using for decades now. How effective is the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine for the measles component in particular? And does it fail a lot? And what do we need to be thinking about failure of the vaccine? So studies of the measles vaccine effectiveness would indicate that one dose is somewhere between 93 and 96% protective. The Australian data suggests 96% protective in our, our milieu. And two doses then get you up to 97 to 99%, depending on the setting. So it it isn't a perfect vaccine, but it's almost perfect. I think that's why we've seen eradication, really, of local transmission of the most infectious disease known to humans, because the vaccine is so good. Having said that, it does leave open the possibility that someone's been vaccinated could acquire measles. It might just be one or three percent, but it's still a possibility, and we need to be open to that. We can't be a hundred percent certain that someone's fully vaccinated could not have measles under any circumstance. So really pretty effective vaccination. And if you're a household contact of, say, someone with measles and you're you're immunized, you're pretty likely to be protected? Yeah, if you have two doses. Well, one dose will do pretty well, but two doses will do closer. And we usually consider that good enough. I'd have to say it's one of the best vaccines we have. It may be the best vaccine we have as far as effectiveness goes. But again, uh, no vaccine is perfect in protection, and there's still that, that small window. The interesting thing about the math of it, as you have a population that's more vaccinated, you typically have less cases of that disease but more of the cases will be vaccinated. Proportionally, more of the cases will yeah. be vaccinated. So we will see, I think, as, as we go on with higher and higher levels of immunity through vaccination, a greater proportion of the cases we see will have been vaccinated, at least one dose. Hmm. Is the failure rate likely to increase as you age? So as you get older or immunocompromised, is it more likely to fail? We don't think so. But 
Some of that's really based on natural infection, which people are immune for life. Mm. And it's a live virus vaccine, so you do get a infection. So we're anticipating that protection will extend into the older ages. And we don't see, actually, we don't see our cases in those age groups. We mm. see them typically in the 20 to 40-year-olds, as I talked about. And then sometimes the unvaccinated, very young kids. So those 20 to 4-year-olds, they're kind of on the shoulder where they, they didn't really get immunized or, or possibly didn't have the live measles. And I guess coming from a period of time where there wasn't a lot of good testing for measles as well, so they might have thought they had measles but never had measles and so forth. Yeah, so it's difficult to believe a history like that, uh, not because you think they're lying, but it's hard to diagnose measles. It's, or it's hard to take that as for sure that they are protected. So we typically discard that unless it's lab-proven measles. But as I said, there was a transition. We used to just have a one-dose measles policy around the world. Mm-hmm. And then somewhere in the mid-90s, we started seeing breakthrough cases on that one dose. And that was basically the the 93% protection wasn't quite high enough. So we went to a two-dose schedule. And so these 20-year-olds there might have missed their second dose. They weren't a young kid when there were two doses around and they missed the catch-up program and the uh, certainly the 40-year-olds as well. And so they're at risk when they travel abroad. Hmm. So Paul, you're right at the pointy end of identifying cases. Are we finding where index cases are coming from and is there a trend that we're seeing? Well, generally, it'll be travel in Asia for Perth, and I believe Australia generally. There's a fair amount of transmission in those localities, and they're popular places to go visit. For good reason, they're lovely places to visit, and I would strongly encourage it. Just make sure your vaccinations are up to date before you go. So is it Bali in particular? or I don't want to single out a single location, but certainly Indonesia and other countries in that area have transmission. But they're not the only places. I mean, there's outbreaks happening in Europe. I think Italy's had recent cases, France. And even Disneyland in California has had some action. So I wouldn't consider myself safe just if I was going to, say, the United States or Canada. I'd say just get protected and be covered off. There might be someone going through that airport that's from a place where there's transmission, even if the destination you're going isn't really known for that. Mm. And are there sort of countries in particular you identify as particularly high risk or...? Um, Well, it can be high risk anywhere. Uh, Unfortunately, much of the developing world doesn't have the comprehensive nature of vaccination programs we have in Australia. And so you can continue to get outbreaks. And because it's so infectious, you only need a waning of vaccination rates, as we've seen in Europe in response to just generalized concerns about uh, immunizations, that they're having outbreaks, which is what's going to happen. certainly what happened in California as well. Great. Paul, thanks so much for talking to us, and that's provided a lot of great information about measles for GPs. We appreciate your interest. 